Mm -hmm. Oh, that's very kind. That's very kind of you. Thank you very much. Uh, as I said a little earlier, this uh, talk, I am not going to tell you what to think about this subject. I'm not even going to tell you what I think about this subject. Rather, I'm going to uh, suggest to you a series of questions uh, for you to work through yourselves to see what you think about the subject. Some, uh, so a series of questions and some advice, really, on how to best go about asking those questions and finding uh, the answers that you think are the best ones to them. Hence, I call this a rough guide to creation and evolution. No definitive answer. I'll be perhaps a little bit more directive when we talk about intelligent design theory later. That probably gives you a hint of where I'm coming from. But this is just some useful background information, some advice on mistakes to avoid, that kind of thing. Let me put it in the context, though, of uh, this oft-asked philosophical question, what's the point? What is the meaning and purpose of life? This is atheist philosopher Kai Nielsen, who is very upfront and straightforward about this. He says, if there is no God, there is no purpose to life. You weren't made for a purpose. You can't have a purpose unless you're made for a purpose. So we have these two very different views. Either there is a purposer behind our universe and we have a given purpose, or there isn't a purposer behind our universe and we have no given innate purpose. It's either or, one or the other, he pays you money, you takes your choice. So were we created for a purpose? That's really the fundamental question here. Um, this, of course, is Michelangelo's painting from the Sistine Chapel. Um, people often know it as God creating Adam and the famous uh, sort of E.T. finger thing going on here in the middle. Um, quite a lot of people won't notice that this behind God's other arm, this figure here, is Eve. And this is actually a painting of God introducing Adam and Eve to one another. So it's uh, a bit later on in the story and a bit more of a romantic painting than, uh, than is often thought. Uh, Philip E. Johnson, I think, has some wise words when he says, the best way to approach a problem of any kind is usually not to talk or even think very much about the ultimate answer until I've made sure I'm asking all the right questions in the right order. We're far too eager and quick to try and get to the answer without thinking carefully enough about what the questions really should be. So this talk is more about the questions, and the second session will be a little bit more about um, my take on the answers to some of them. So I would say, well, start at the very beginning. We had this verse earlier, in the beginning, God created. If you want more, jump all the way to the New Testament, leave the, the rest of the Genesis account there, and go to, in the beginning was the word, the logos, the rationality expressed of God. Through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made. When John picks up on the ancient Greek word logos, it was a term from um, philosophy amongst the ancient Greeks. He was kind of meaning the same kind of thing that Stephen Hawking did in his earlier book, A Brief History of Time, when he talked about knowing the mind of God if we knew the theory of everything. Now, of course, Hawking didn't mean it literally, he just meant it as a metaphor, because he doesn't believe in God. 
um, but John means it literally, that there is a mind of God, a purposer behind the universe, and in Christ he's actually revealed himself personally in a person, if you like. I had this quote in the service as well from Plato, boiling down the options, everything comes either by nature, by art, by chance, by some combination of these, and it really boils down to this, either mind comes before matter, or matter comes before mind. In the beginning was the word, or in the beginning was the stuff. (laughs) So we get these two basic worldviews, a hard and fast distinction between two basic worldviews, either materialism, naturalism, or some kind of supernaturalistic view. And here's a little video uh, with me in it uh, explaining this distinction and the importance of this distinction between the very two different basic ways of looking at the world. For a place dedicated to dealing with death, a graveyard is full of life. A graveyard is an oasis of nature in the midst of the concrete jungle. And the sort of place that makes you wonder if nature really is all there is. Whether, for example, there might be life after death. Fundamentally, there are only two basic types of worldview. On the one hand, there's metaphysical naturalism. And on the other hand, there's supernaturalism. Naturalism says that material, physical reality is the only type of reality that there is. Everything is just atoms in the void. For fairly obvious reasons, most naturalists don't believe in life after death. Supernaturalism covers a wide variety of viewpoints, from deism to pantheism, All of which agree, however, that naturalism is false. A supernaturalist is simply anyone who believes that material, physical reality is not the only type of reality that there is. Most supernaturalists believe in a god, and many would believe in god and in human souls, and life after death, and angels, but not in ghosts. And some would believe in angels, but not in God. So whatever a supernaturalist believes in, they believe that naturalism is false. And a naturalist believes that all varieties of supernaturalism are false. There is no middle ground here, no halfway house. Either naturalism is true, or naturalism is false. And one way or the other, it makes quite a difference. So it's a very basic question and a very significant question as well. Is naturalism, is materialism true or not? Is it mind first or is it matter first? Well, Christians all agree on something called the doctrine of creation. Christians all believe that it's the Logos first, that naturalism is false, and that God created the universe. That's the fundamental theistic claim. And let's call that the doctrine of creation that all Christians share. However he did it, God created us for a purpose. Life does, therefore, have an objective, an innate, a given purpose. But there is diversity in this 
unity. The doctrine of creation is one thing, but Christians disagree over various different models or pictures of creation, of how God went about doing that creation. Every model of creation includes the doctrine of creation, but it also includes further things that distinguish it from the other models. Um, So it's roughly a matter of various different theories, all of which overlap on the doctrine of creation, which they have in common, but all of which have various other things that they agree and or disagree on. And there are a lot of different models and pictures out there. Now, as Philip Johnson again says, the essential point of creation has nothing to do with the timing or the mechanism the creator chose to employ, the model but with the element of design or purpose, the doctrine. In the broadest sense, a creationist is simply a person who believes that the world, and especially mankind, was designed and exists for a purpose. So there's a very general sense in which all Christians are, of course, creationists. We believe that we are a creation of a creator. So, I suggest that the first question in this area is this. Is the doctrine of creation, quite apart from the different models, the doctrine of creation, is that true? That's a crucial question. And I don't think you can be a Christian if your answer to that question is in the negative. If you don't think there's a God, it's going to be pretty hard for you to be a Christian. Useful hint. Discovering some physical process or other that produces a given result does not show that either the result or the process that led up to it was not itself intended by an agent. I hope this picture of a kettle makes the point just because you can see the process leading up to a certain end result does not mean that nobody intended to have the cup of tea. There are, in other words, various different meanings of the word why. The ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle thought there were at least four different separate meanings of the word why, including what caused X, whatever that is, what he called the, the efficient cause The kind of thing where you have some cause leading up to an effect. And also including the question, well, what is X for? What he called the teleological cause. It comes from the Greek word telos, meaning goal or end. It's where you have something that you explain in terms of something it's aimed at achieving. Here's another little video that explains that. All right. Okay, I'm just going to rewind a bit too. There we go. One response to the question, why, is to give what Aristotle called an efficient cause. That means tracking down a series of causes and effects that leads up to producing a certain outcome. Aristotle thought that there was another response that could be given to the question, why? And that is to give a teleological cause. That's where you mention a goal 
or purpose in order to explain something. The difference between an efficient and a teleological cause can be seen in the difference between asking what series of causes made the beans get hot and asking what goal was meant to be achieved by the beans getting hot. Why did the beans get hot? Because the microwaves jostled the water molecules in the baked beans? That's an efficient causal explanation. Why did the beans get hot? Because I wanted my lunch. That's a teleological explanation. <laughs> between efficient and teleological explanation. Naturalists think that we should aim to understand everything in terms of efficient causality. They see teleological explanations as a sort of lazy shorthand for the only real type of explanations that there are, efficient causality. On this view, to say that I want to do the washing up is to say something like, I've been caused to desire a clean plate and caused to pick up this brush, and caused to turn on the tap. On the other hand, most people think that teleological explanation is a genuine type of explanation that can't be reduced to talk about efficient causality. There's no agreed answer here, but there certainly are two very different perspectives. So if you accept that they are genuinely different types of explanation, they seem to be different but compatible. The beans were hot because of the efficient causality of the microwaves and because I wanted my lunch. So it might be that uh, processes in nature happen because of various efficient causes in the natural world and because God wanted that process to happen. Minds can create directly or indirectly. Discovering some material process, such as, say, a, a blind watchmaker, to use Dawkins's very uh, fabulous phrase, that doesn't contradict belief in a blind watchmaker maker. Here we have a mind. Here we have a, a computer-controlled factory. Maybe this is running a design software using evolutionary algorithms. And the effect is a lot of cars. As the Oxford philosopher Richard Swinburne says, men make not only machines, but machine-making machines. They may therefore naturally infer from nature, which produces animals and plants, to a creator of nature, similar to men who make machine-making machines. Maybe nature is God's animal-making machine. So science, in and of itself, does not reveal a world without design quotes from Richard Dawkins there. It's rather naturalism, atheism, that demands a world without design. But as I was arguing yesterday, science and naturalism are not the same thing. You could put it like this. This difference between these two worldviews, you could diagram. You have here the set of all reality. And I've said there's a subset 
there called the set of physical natural reality. But there are things that are real that are outside the subset. Things like God, angels, human souls. Well, a naturalist is someone who thinks that there is really no distinction. Because there is nothing outside of that subset. The set of reality and the set of physical stuff are one and the same thing. And that can skew how they interpret the data of science, how they look at things, the kind of explanations they'll allow themselves to kind of reach for in science. Here's Richard Dawkins again saying, the kind of explanation we come up with must not contradict the laws of physics. He's just asserting this, of course. Indeed, it will make use of the laws of physics and nothing more than the laws of physics. Well, okay, that's, that's his rule. You might want to ask, why? Dembski puts it, here we're dealing with a naturalistic metaphysic that shapes and controls what theories of biological origins are permitted on the playing field in advance of any discussion or weighing of evidence. It's not that Dawkins is getting this no-design view out of the evidence. He's bringing it to the evidence and saying we must look at the evidence in such a way that it could never point us towards design. He's skewing the field before the game even starts. Let me uh, illustrate this for you with a little uh, clip. And I have a chocolate bar on offer here. This is a concentration test. I'm going to show you a video clip of two teams of people uh, passing a basketball amongst themselves. There's a team in black t-shirts passing a basketball amongst themselves. There's a team in white t-shirts passing a basketball amongst themselves. The question is, can you concentrate on the team in white t-shirts without getting distracted by the other team? Can you concentrate on the team in white t-shirts enough to be able to answer this question? How many times do the team in white t-shirts pass the ball amongst themselves? And whoever uh, puts their hand up first uh, after the clip, I'll, I'll uh, uh, initiate a, uh, a hands-up moment. Whoever gets that uh, up first and gets the correct answer, the right number, will get this bar of chocolate nut from my local Ikea. Oh yes, no expense spared. 35p. So, <laughs> okay, you're all ready for this? This clip, it's a silent clip, we'll just count in our minds silently. I'll probably start you off with the first one and then we'll do it in silence and distract other people, of course. One. Okay, now, <laughs> hands down, hands down, because I've got to start. I've got to start this off, so we will have an, an even chance getting the hands up. This is quick draw, quick draw. I, I, yes, in lady in white, I saw your hand first. What? How many times did they pass the ball? Sixteen. Any advance on sixteen? Seventeen. 
Anyone got anything different than 16 or 17? Uh, it would have been an 18 the last pass had been completed. Ah, uh, okay. 15. Okay, 15, 16, 17 would have been 18 if it had completed. <laughs> uh, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna decide this because it's it's closely thought. I think you should share this bar between the 16 and the 17s here because your hands were up first. Um, the official answer is 16 and a half. Uh, you're quite right. It is a bit of a trick because that last pass doesn't get there. So what do you mean by a pass? Does it have to get there to, to finish? But in addition to this, did anybody notice anything particularly odd or distracting to you whilst you were trying to complete this exercise? The gorilla. The gorilla. Hands up, everybody who saw the gorilla. Okay, so three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. So, okay, we're about nine or ten of us in the room didn't see a gorilla. Um, so about half of us saw a gorilla and half of us didn't see the gorilla. I'm going to play that clip again just to prove that there was a gorilla in it. So I'm not moving the, the clip on. I shall just replay it from the start here. You don't have to count this time. You can just keep an eye out for anything that looks gorilla-like. <laughs> I love the look of surprise on your face. You really didn't see the gorilla the first time, did you? <laughs> see? Now, I think that's it's a, it's a little psychological uh, experiment, really. But it's a good illustration of the fact that the ideas that you're committed to, that you bring to the table, bring to a discussion, can heavily shape even what you experience of reality. Because... If you bought in sufficiently to the idea that anything that's not white is irrelevant, just focus on the white, that's the only way to go about answering the question, then you literally didn't even see the guy in a gorilla suit in front of you doing this. Now, if you approach the material world with the idea in hand, we must only explain things in terms of physics. Maybe there could be evidence pointing to the supernatural right in front of your eyes, doing this, metaphorically, and you wouldn't even see it. You wouldn't see it for what it is, at least. Um, so I would say be very wary of ways of defining science and what it's doing that kind of stack the deck one way or the other in advance. I might suggest to you this might apply just as much to Richard Dawkins' naturalistic assumptions as it might apply to someone coming at this field with assumptions taken from the Bible, interpreted in a particular way. That you know, the result must fit with this preconception that I brought to the field. Maybe that's kind of putting the cart before the horse in terms of a sensible way to allow ourselves to really experience what's in front of us. So Alvin Plantinga, a very famous Christian philosopher from the States, says, the claim that evolution demonstrates that human beings and other living creatures have not, contrary to appearances, been designed, 
is not part of or a consequence of the scientific theory of evolution as such. Rather, it's a metaphysical or theological add-on. Naturalism and evolutionary theory together imply the denial of divine design. But evolutionary theory by itself doesn't have that implication. It's the philosophical assumption that Dawkins brings to the table that has that implication, not the theory just as a material explanation, as a process that you might observe. So that is some advice really on going about asking that first question, is the doctrine of creation true? Question two, I'd suggest, is this. If we don't assume that the doctrine of creation is false, like Dawkins does, does the evidence suggest that evolution is an adequate explanation of biological diversity, or is there a better explanation? If we don't stack the deck. Now, note, this is an interesting and important question, but it's not, I suggest, a crucial question. You can be a Christian without having an answer to this question. In all good conscience, I think. How God created is obviously secondary to the fact that God created. As long as you believe that God created, it's very much a secondary issue how you think he did it. And evolution, which, as we'll see, is a a, a very widely coverage kind of word. It means all sorts of different things. Evolution might be a wholly adequate theory for what it's meant to do in its own scientific terms. Or it might be a partially adequate theory. Or it might be a wholly inadequate theory. But the right way to find out is to let the evidence speak for itself. Now, as I say, evolution means a whole plethora of things. It means at least these six things when people talk about evolution. And I've kind of arranged them at the top, what a lot of people would say is the most probable, most probably true element or meaning of evolution, down to the bottom, what a lot of people would say is the least well-established element. So we start at the top with the ancient Earth hypothesis, that the Earth is about 4.5 billion years old. Then we have the the progressive hypothesis that life has changed over time and it used to be in the distant past relatively simple, relatively simple, and it then became over time more complex. The common ancestry hypothesis says that every existent form of life is related by common ancestry to previous but different forms of life. The universal common ancestry hypothesis is that life originated at only one place and so all life is related back to that original form by common ancestry and that's a different claim than merely the common ancestry claim. The Darwinian hypothesis is the idea that there's a fully naturalistic explanation for the macroevolutionary development of life from simple to complex And that explanation is at least primarily just an extrapolation of the observed microevolutionary processes of natural selection operating on random genetic mutations. And finally, the naturalistic origins hypothesis, the idea that life arose from non-living matter by virtue of nothing but 
the ordinary laws of physics and chemistry. So evolution kind of means a whole lot of different things and all of that stuck together. And it would, of course, be perfectly possible to doubt some of these points without doubting all of them. Sometimes if you doubt one of these, it has a knock-on effect and it means you have to doubt another one. I mean, if you didn't believe... um, Let's think. Um, If you didn't believe the progress hypothesis, it wouldn't make much sense to believe the Darwinian hypothesis as an explanation of, of it. But you could believe the progress hypothesis without believing the Darwinian explanation of it, you see. So you can kind of separate some of these things out. It's not an all or nothing affair. The question, do you believe in evolution doesn't really have a sensible answer. Apart from, well, hang on a minute, what do you mean by evolution? Which bit of it are we talking about here? (laughs) Philip van der Elst wrote a very good book on C.S. Lewis. He uh, says in that book, if we want to restrict ourselves to a genuinely open-minded scientific approach, great care must be taken to distinguish between what the raw field data actually in, in itself reveals about the origins and development of life and the conclusions that follow from fitting that data into a particular interpretive frame, framework. Whether we've taken that interpretive framework from, from a belief in atheism or from a belief in the Bible. But interestingly, unlike naturalists like Dawkins, Christians can actually afford to be much more relaxed and open-minded about the answer to this question too. Plantinga puts it like this. A Christian, naturally, believes that God has created and sustains the world. Starting from this position, we recognize that there are many ways in which God could have created the living things he has, in fact, created. Well, how, in fact, did he do it? Did it all happen just by the ways of the workings of the laws of physics, or was there further divine activity? That's the question. Starting from the belief in God, we must look at the evidence and consider the probabilities as best we can and see where the cards lie, as it were. But if you're Dawkins, there's only one game in town. It had to have all happened by physics alone, otherwise his ship is blown out of the water. Now, if you had answers to both of these two questions, and I've said one's crucial and one's not, then you'd be in quite a good position to ask our third out of four questions. Question three, which model of creation is the most plausible? Interesting, important, but not crucial. You can be a Christian without having an answer to this question. And it pays to spend some time thinking a bit about the nature of relationship between science and theology. I did a bit of this yesterday, but basically science is the quest to try and understand material reality. Scientists are not infallible. You may have noticed this from this morning's talk. Um, Scientists have different philosophical, different personal beliefs, and those affect how they think about science and its theories and so on. And you'll have noticed that some accept a philosophy called naturalism, which uh, really skews the approach from the outset. Others disagree with that philosophy, different definitions of science are given and so on, and those disagreements can't be settled on scientific grounds, they're philosophical, theological disputes. So however careful scientists are, they can get things wrong, 
And scientists must always remember that it's reality that's calling the shots here, not us. Well, theology is the Christian quest to try and understand all of reality, including the material, in terms of a Christian worldview. And when theologians seek to put an understanding of material reality into their theology, they sometimes talk of the two books of God, the Bible and nature, both from the same author. And if both books come from the same God, then it makes sense to think that they don't contradict each other. They must fit together somehow, and the task is to try and find out, well, how? Now, theologians are fallible. Theologians have different philosophical commitments that affect how they think about theology and its theories. And however careful theologians are, they can get things wrong. Theologians must always remember that it's reality that calls the shots and not them. So if you put these two fallible human quests of understanding together, it's perhaps not surprising that sometimes they can come into conflict with each other. That doesn't mean that the reality is coming into conflict or that there really is a problem out there. It could just as well mean that there's a problem with how we've gone about thinking about out there. A conflict between science and theology doesn't mean that science disproves the theology any more than it could mean that the theology disproves the science. It could mean that there's the fallibility of science or the fallibility of theology or the fallibility of both have come into play rather than any actual contradiction. So our model of creation is just a theological attempt to coherently integrate the common Christian doctrine of creation with a particular scientific interpretation of the book of nature and a particular theological interpretation of the book of God. And there's... As you can see, an awful lot that could go wrong in that process. It's a very tricky, complicated subject area. But the right question here is not, what's the best scientific account of reality? It's not, what's the best naturalistic account of reality? Certainly, it's rather, what's the best account of reality, given everything we think we know? John Steck puts it, we cannot pursue theology without bringing to that study all we know, think we know, about the world. Nor can we pursue science as Christians without bringing to that study all we know, or at least think we know, about God. And it's a very, very complicated area. If you were really going to be confident that you had hammered out the answer to this, you know, I want to see your PhDs in the philosophy of knowledge, the philosophy of science, the philosophy of revelation, uh, natural theology, systematic theology, ancient languages and their translation, ancient Near East cultural context that might affect your translations, hermeneutics, cosmology, physics, chemistry, biochemistry, biology, and information theory. <laughs> yeah. Fortunately, science and theology are collaborative projects, but you know none of us really on our own has the wherewithal to hammer this out and even when you get people collaborating together you know what philosophy are they coming with does that skew it different people end up with different results 
There are, therefore, unsurprisingly in this area, a wide range of equally Christian views of the answer to this third question. From young earth creationism, sort of six-day creation, six to ten thousand years ago, literal days, all of that. Various types of old earth creationism, which accepts the Big Bang and our old earth, but various direct divine inputs into the process and probably uh, literal Adam and Eve and so on. Intelligent design theory, a relatively new player on the field in the last sort of 25 years or so, which is actually compatible with a wide range of these other views, to various forms of theistic evolution. And there's actually at least two different forms of theistic evolution out there. So there's lots of different viewpoints to look at. Well, in terms of the understanding of Genesis, I'm with Alvin Plantinga. He says the proper understanding of the early chapters of Genesis is a difficult area. An area where I am not sure where the truth lies. This is not only the leading Christian philosopher of religion in the world today, but the leading philosopher of religion in the world today is Christian Alvin Plantinga. Some very good advice, I think, from St. Augustine in his book, The Literal Meaning of Genesis. And it's interesting to note that he does not hold what a young earth creationist today would consider to be a literal interpretation of Genesis. Because back in the day, a literal interpretation of a text meant interpreting it according to the literary genre of that text. You think of it more of a a literary interpretation of the text, and he didn't think that the genre of the text was meant to be a straightforward historical textbook kind of account. So he thought he had a literal interpretation of Genesis, and it wasn't a young earth one. But he said this, In matters that are obscure and far beyond our vision, even in such as we may find treated in Holy Scripture... Different interpretations are sometimes possible without prejudice to the faith we have received, to the kind of creedal core of what you have to believe to be a Christian. In such a case, we should not rush headlong and so firmly take our stand on one side that if further progress in the search for truth would justify uh, undermining that position, that we too fall with it. He's saying, don't hold on to these different models so tightly that you'd end up throwing out the baby with the bathwater if new data came in. So let's go back to the beginning. In the beginning, God. In the beginning was the word, the logos. However he did it, God created us for a purpose. And we saw three good arguments for that earlier today. So life does have an objective purpose to know and glorify God. But John then goes on, having set the scene, and he says, The word, the Logos, became flesh, made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. We've empirically verified this. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So that's the ultimate fourth question. Is it true that the word became flesh, etc.? This is a crucial question. And again, you can't be a Christian if you answer in the negative. How you answer this question largely depends on what you make of the doctrine of creation rather than the models. 
Hence, John links these beliefs together in his introduction. Given that there's a God who could reveal himself, Jesus is an obvious candidate for that revelation. And the only question is, is that really the best way to interpret him? If the word became flesh, then that truth dwarfs every other. Knowing who we're here for, knowing who we're here for, is more important than knowing exactly how he arranged for us to be here. Yeah? There we go. That's the one down, one to go. How's the timing? Should we take uh, 10, 15 minutes of questions? Or do you want a uh, loo break, coffee break first? And then I shall leave it to your wisdom. Yes, okay. I mean, you can come and talk to me one-on-one if you want. But uh, the, the third talk naturally breaks into three little sections. So I'll do a bit and then we'll have a bit of a five-minute discussion and then another bit and so on and break it up a bit so that it's not just one long lecture. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, okay. How did I put it? Um, knowing who we're here for is more important than knowing how he arranged for us to be here. Yeah. I, and I think particularly, I mean, Christians get very caught up in this area, but non-Christians as well, because we're caught up in it sometimes, can get all caught up in, you know, I can't become a Christian until I've sorted out you know, whether I believe in a young earth or an old earth or this, that, and the other. And you say, well, actually, you could be completely agnostic about the answers to those questions in good conscience, so long as you think you've got good reasons to believe there is a God, that you do need forgiveness and that he offered it to you through Jesus. (laughs) And then, between you and him and the Christian community, you can go and work out what you think about these other issues if you want to, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Hmm. Dawkins, if you would relying on the law of physics accepts uh, an evolutionary law of physics? Well, he wouldn't say, yeah, it's evolution in terms of laws, it's more that there are um, the random mutation of genetics through, through things like cosmic rays happening to hit the body and so you get a copying mistake. And usually the copying mistakes end up in rubbish. They don't code for anything useful. But maybe, occasionally, a copying error could improve what's written there. You could end up with a more interesting sentence, as it were, in the, in the genome. And if it is, if, it's, if it happens to be something that, that is useful, that helps that organism that results to um, out-survive the other organisms, to spread its genome wider, then that, that helpful mistake will get kind of replicated more than the other beings in the gene pool and so it'll spread and get established and so by sort of ratcheting principle a little bit by a little bit by a little bit um, that's meant to according to him explain how you go all the way from really relatively simple to a vast diversity of very very complicated stuff by building up little bit by little bit because obviously it would be it would be stupid to, uh, to think that uh, it all sort of happened by a huge random roll of the dice all in one go. But he thinks maybe if you break it up into little bits, then chance plus the the natural selection is kind of 
what happens to work in the environment at the time will spread it. Um, and it's not, it's, it's not a sort of law of physics, and it's more of a sort of consequence of physics and chemistry that is called the law of natural selection. But it's basically, if something helps an organism to out-survive the others, then, well, then, of course, it out-survives the others, and that means that when it copies itself, if it does, you end up with more things that are similar to it. Yeah. question in regards to in a moment you're going to share about maybe mm. what your preferences on the models of creation um, yes partly at least yes my <laughs> question is about you showed the picture Michelangelo mm. it was a dating agency for Adam and Eve <laughs> yeah. a big question I think in, a lot of people ask me mm. um, is about depending on which of these models it's not a, a young earth creationist view can you help us think through about, actually, was there an Adam and Eve as a lot of Christians hmm. have traditionally understood? Yeah. Does that fit in with uh, evolution or any of the, any, when you've said you know, evolution is, is, is many different things? Can you yes. Think and I think it's interesting the way you phrase it as well, because I quite like that, saying, was there an Adam and Eve in the way that's traditionally understood? Because there are in the Christian community a number of different ways of taking those figures that go all the way from a very literal, there were the first ever two human beings directly created by God, and that was Adam, and then Eve made out of his rib, and then they had children, and everyone in the human race is related back to Adam and Eve, through to, or kind of on the other bookend as it were, Adam and Eve are merely kind of metaphorical characters. And people will point out things like the, the word Adam is a pun on earth. It, it means sort of the mud man made out of the earth and uh, Adama. And there's a, a shift somewhat in the text from that's kind of the, the man, the Adam, through to Adam as a proper name in later chapters and, and things. Um, so there's a range of interpretation there. Um, including things like are they sort of a representative sort of federal headship of the human race they're, they're a kind of they, they were genuine historical figures but they're, they're being used as representative of humanity in a kind of parallel way to which Paul talks about Jesus as the, the new man but actually in Romans Paul talks about Jesus as the second man Adam is the first man, and Jesus is the second man. Now, literally speaking, of course, Jesus was not the second man. Well, that would be what Cain and Abel, you know. So it, that must be meant metaphorically. He's the second type of man, the new man, as opposed to the old type of man who is represented by the figure of Adam, who may be just metaphorical or maybe an individual human being but who's being used as a type of a representative of the old type of humanity and kind of Paul says those who because we sin we kind of identify into that type of old humanity not, and it's not so much because Adam sinned we're caused to be sinful but it says when we sin we kind of buy into 
that, that kind of thing. We show ourselves to be a, a son of Adam, just as much as in the, you might call it, you might talk about, oh, you're, you're, you're a son of Satan because you're a liar. You don't literally mean that Satan sired you. You mean you're showing yourself to have that kind of a nature. So I, I think that's quite an interesting passage to go to in, and then sort of applying back into how really is Paul thinking about Adam and Eve. And that, that it certainly seems to me there are ways of, of reading that that are, um, would include but wouldn't be limited to the sort of young earth creationist way of interpreting it, but which could still include literal people who might not be the first people because when you go back into Genesis and you see things like okay, it starts talking about Adam and Eve and then you have Cain and Abel Cain kills Abel and God says I'm going to exile you and uh, he says oh, you know, uh, what about the other people what are they going to do to me when you send me into the land of Nod hang on a minute where have all these other people suddenly come from you know, and God puts the mark of Cain on him so that the other people won't do him in but you know, it, okay, what, what do you say? Adam and Eve have been secretly having loads of children on the side that haven't been mentioned up to now, or, um, and so on. So I think you, you could even say that there are indications within the Genesis text itself that reading Adam and Eve as literally the first two people and, and so on doesn't quite fit naturally with everything that's in the text itself. Uh, and so maybe we're, if we're trying to read it that way, I take it that we're, we're trying to read it in a bit, a bit too flat, flatly literalistic a kind of a way. Um, but I would say it's not a simple, again, it's not an all or nothing like, do you believe in evolution or not? Because it means a lot of different things. It's not as straightforward as, do you believe in Adam and Eve or not? You know, <laughs> yeah. There was some research a few years ago about this and the, mm. whoever was doing it, however valid it is, mm. uh, the conclusion was that all mankind had descended from one woman yes. and they thought that she was from Africa. Yes, I'm just giving it that, to that's you. right, it's called the, the mitochondrial eve. Um, uh, I don't know all the details of this because this is where I throw myself to be more of a philosopher than a scientist but they they trace back some of the the genetic material and they can trace back they they think in this study and I don't know if it's been replicated and etc but it would support the what's called the out of Africa model of the origin of humanity that we did all start in Africa and spread around the world from from that one kind of source as as it were Um, Yes, but the, that, you know, it might support the fact that we all, we're all related to one woman, but it doesn't support that we're all related to one initial couple. It's like the difference between universal and common ancestry coming into play. Yes, sorry, yeah. You said there were two types. Oh, sorry, no, oh, sorry, I didn't see your hand up. Uh, lady at the back first, and then I will come to you. Absolutely, sorry, ladies first. Yes. Can you have death before sin? Mm. Because if you can't have evolution, evolution evolution needs death. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. yes. So, okay, can you have death before sin? Particularly given that evolution needs needs death, and it's one argument that's sometimes used by young Earth creationists to say since evolution needs death, and there wasn't death before sin, therefore you can't have evolution. And on the face of it, that's quite an interesting argument, isn't it? Um, two things in response to that that might be helpful. Uh, one is that you can take you know, the whole eating of the tree and you know, the day you eat of it you shall surely die and so on 
You can take the death there as not being physical death. After all, Adam and Eve don't physically die that day. But spiritual death. The spiritual death of being cut off from the source of life, God. Not knowing God properly. Um, And so you can take the story more as about the rift between the relationship between humans and God. Rather than talking about physical death and suffering. And you can take, um, talking about the curse is a very difficult passage as well, the curse on nature and so on. But there are even indications, again, in the text itself, where think of it things like, I will increase your suffering in childbirth, in childbearing. Not I will cause childbearing to, to now be a thing of suffering, uh, when it wasn't before, but it will now be worse because your relationship with God is out of kilter. So... You know, maybe it's not indicating that there was no suffering before the fall, just that the experience of the world, because people are in a correct relationship with God, is very different. Just as I've, I've used this analogy sometimes, just as if you have to do a, a job that is a, a, a work of drudgery, but you're doing it in order to impress the girl that you like, you know, it's a very different experience doing that job than because you've got to do it for a boss that you hate who's paying you very little. The same work is getting done but according to the relationship that it's happening in, it can be a very different experience of the same situation. Maybe that's a bit analogous to what's, what's going on there. The other thing there is that there was recently, I've quoted a couple of times from uh, William A. Dembski, who's one of the intelligent design theorists. He's a philosopher and a mathematician, several PhDs, very clever guy. And he recently, he's a theologian as well, and he recently wrote a book about that very question called The End of Christianity. And uh, I won't go into his argument, but he, he basically produced an entirely new view on this situation, which for one thing tells me that after 2,000 years of the church trying to wrestle with this kind of question, the fact that someone can come up with an idea that no one's thought of before is, is like, it tells you we haven't even thought of all the possible answers yet. So that's interesting in and of itself. But his... his answer, which involves some philosophical chicanery that I won't go into here, but he basically argues it's possible to say that sin and suffering and death entered the world before Adam and Eve fell because they fell. That you can have that sort of backwards causation, that due to them sinning, death and evil existed in the world before they sinned, Whereas if they hadn't sinned, there wouldn't have been death and evil in the world from the beginning. So although the death and evil pre-existed them, it was caused by them. <laughs> it does. It's a little bit timey-wimey, wibbly-wobbly, but, but he, he genuinely he draws on some very interesting logical puzzles called Newcomb's Paradox and, and things, some very logical um, paradoxes um, that show that that's possible. Uh, I didn't find his view particularly plausible... But I thought it was absolutely fascinating that he'd even come up with a new possible way of examining this question that he said allowed you to blame death and so on on the fall, even though it pre-existed it. An entirely new position. And he says that takes away one of the reasons for being a young earth creationist. So, yeah, the end of Christianity, why William Dembski. It's a bit of a mind-knotty read, but absolutely fascinating stuff. (laughs) Mm. 
Thank you for the minder. Yes, Francis. Hi. Um, you said there are two types of theistic evolution. Yeah. What are those? Okay. Two types of theistic evolution, at least, would be one, you could say, okay, God created a physical process that he knew would work in a certain way, intending it to work that way, and he just left that, he sustains it in existence. So it's not deism, because he's sustaining in existence moment by moment. But he doesn't add anything to the, that process. He just lets the process do the job. By genuinely random mutations and natural selection happening. But maybe because he foresaw certain results that would come of it. But he doesn't kind of cause them by, by putting his fingers into the system, as it were. He doesn't actively guide the path of evolution at any point. Another position would be to say that not only did God create and sustain this process of evolution, but that at least sometimes he guides it and shapes it and makes sure it goes in certain directions directly. Um, it's just that a theistic evolutionist would tend to say, if that's the case, we don't know that by looking at nature. We know that through our theology. Um, because if you, if you say that not only God did God guide and directly do stuff in the process, but we can know that by looking at the process, that makes you an intelligent design theorist. But it's quite a fine line, actually, between that kind of God-guided evolution, but you can't tell it from looking at the process, and God-guided the process, and you can tell it by looking at it. They're very kind of next to each other, intelligent design, one kind of theistic evolutionist, but the other kind of theistic evolutionist would be, no, no, God didn't do anything in the process. He just made the process, and the process is fully capable of doing it all on its own. So there's two, at least, different schools of theistic evolution. Yeah. It would be good to take a break now. Yes. Yeah. That leads very nicely into the next section. Marvellous.